I used to laugh a lot more, but now it's easier to frown than smile, and sometimes I reach up and find weights hanging around my neck. I feel brittle and dry and hollow and heavy. My heart is dead beat and fatigued. I drag my feet through Sunday services. They preach from the pulpit, lift one another up, but my legs can barely keep myself standing. I'm tired of being sad. I'm tired of only remembering dancing. And I know you say, consider it overflow with put on joy, but I ran out. And it's not like I didn't try. I searched for joy beneath my bank account in the creases of romance, in the headlines of newspapers, in movements and marches, promotions and politics. I reinvented myself over and over and over again. I changed my pronouns. I lost weight. I ate food. I hated myself. I loved myself. I set goals and resolutions. I changed my degree. I followed my heart. I painted my cabinets white and ripped up my kitchen floors. I went to bars on Saturday night. I followed all the rules for a prospering life. I pursued all this world had to offer me, and I came up empty. God, please, call up joy from the streets of my broken spirit. Remind my shattered heart you are love. Remind my helpless hands you are powerful. Remind my facade of a smile you our joy pry up my fingers from desperation and hopelessness and flood my being with jubilation. Engrave humble, beautiful triumph in every word I speak. Take everything I have, Lord, and give me joy. I just want to feel joy again. God, please give me joy. Wow. Well, good morning, Veritas. I'm, I'm Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, I asked Johnny to bring that. Um, she wrote that. Um, you wouldn't imagine that a girl in high school would have enough life to be able to write from that kind of depth. Uh, but she has written something powerfully. And I, and I thought it was perfect. Her dad, you guys have heard Jake each uh, teach here. In fact, you're going to hear him again next week. He's coming back again next week. Uh, that's, that's his daughter, Johnny. And uh, he had sent me a couple audio files of these spoken words that she had written. And I thought, man, that one right there is just perfect for today. And I, I hope that you almost felt like palpably in the room, the dissonance between filling this place with worship and celebration and even on the front end, a Christmas song, you know, and then the kind of jarring, um, sad reality of hardship and crying out for joy, not an expression of joy, like it's just bubbling over kind of joy, a desperation, God, I need joy. I don't have joy and I'm asking you for, for joy. She, a couple of her lines, I, I wrote them down. God, please call joy from the streets of my broken spirit. Like, God, you're going to have to call joy out because I'm standing in a broken street. Will you call joy out? She ends it, I want to feel joy again, God. Please, please give me joy. So we're in Advent season, 
Advent, those weeks that Christians around the world and for many ages have spent preparing to really celebrate the coming of Jesus Christ, our hope. And the theme that's going to carry us through this Advent season as we teach through the scriptures is going to be joy. But we want to find joy as the Bible lays it out, not always the bubbling over excitement, birthday party kind of joy. That's also a human experience, and that's valid and relevant, and I hope you experience that kind of joy as well. But we're also going to explore some of the other ways that the Bible calls us into joy, and today it's joy despite hardship. And we're actually going to find that theme um, boldly in the most familiar like Christmas narrative in the whole Bible, Luke chapter 2. So if you have your Bible, make your way to Luke chapter 2, and then once you find it, if you would stand with me, I want to read together Luke chapter 2. I'll read it for you. You can follow along in uh, Luke chapter 2. Don't let the familiarity of these words um, kind of be lost on you. Um, If you grew up like I did where you know, there weren't that many Christmas specials, and one of the only ones was the Charlie Brown Christmas special, you know. You remember Linus taking center stage and reading the same text. It was pretty familiar, even for people who aren't familiar with the Bible at all, this, this particular narrative, um, but remarkable all at the same time. So let's, let's lean in as we hear from God in Luke chapter 2. In those, de- in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered, This first registration took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So everyone went out to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family line of David to be registered along with Mary, who is engaged to him and was pregnant. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth Then she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him tightly in cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. In the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you, who is Messiah, the Lord. This will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. Suddenly there was a multitude of the heavenly host with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors. And when the angels had left them and returned to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Man, let's go straight to Bethlehem. Let's see what has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they hurried off, and they found both Mary and Joseph, and the baby was lying in the manger. And after seeing them, they reported the message they were told about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary was treasuring up all these things in her heart, meditating on them. And the shepherds returned, glorifying, praising God for all the things that they had seen and heard, which they were just told or just as as had been told. When the eight days were completed for his circumcision, he was named Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived. And when the days of their purification, according to the law of Moses, were finished, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, just as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male will be dedicated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. 
Okay, I'm going to keep reading here, but I want you to just be looking. We're about to see this really strange little encounter with this strange man, Simeon. And what I was talking about before with the dissonance of the Christmas story, the dissonance of, of joy kind of being arrested quickly by something that doesn't quite fit. Um, I want you to see that and look for it as, as we see what happens as they encounter Simeon. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, looking forward to Israel's consolation, and the Holy Spirit was on him. He had been, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he saw the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, he entered the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to perform what was customary under the law, Simeon took him up in his arms, praising God, and said, Now, Master... You can dismiss your servant in peace as you promised. My eyes have seen your salvation. You've prepared it in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people, Israel. His father and mother were amazed at what had been said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and told his mother Mary, Indeed, this child is destined to cause the fall and the rise of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed, and a sword will pierce your own soul, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. So Jesus, uh, we encounter this text. We've heard it, we've read it. Um, But there's mystery in this text. There is profoundness in this text. And Lord, we need to be awakened to it. Would you, by your spirit, Lord, awaken our hearts and souls? Would you give us an eagerness to hear? Would you take off some blinders that might otherwise cause us to miss some things that are right there in front of us? Take the deafness away. Give us ears so that we can actually hear from you. Not what we think we want to hear or are telling ourselves, but we want to hear from from you, Lord, as as we lean in, Lord. We're your servants. We're here to listen. Lord, speak to us. We want to follow you and we want to obey. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So Luke 2, I mean, it is, it is a fun narrative, right? I mean, there's a lot of joy going on. There's a lot of glory. There's angels and there's shepherds and, you know, news of great joy that will be to all people. And that's absolutely true. And it's fantastic. Um, but this stranger comes, and at first, guys, Simeon follows the script, right? Simeon, on the front end of this encounter, keeps adding to that narrative, that, that movement of joy, and he takes him in his arms. Okay, just imagine if some of you have had children. I want you to imagine that scene. Take it out of the myth and the fable kind of, you know, mist in your mind and in a real world. Imagine you're taking your, your infant child in and suddenly this strange man just kind of locks eyes on you and makes a beeline for you. And the next thing you know, he's reaching out and taking your child into his arms. I mean, what a kind of awkward, weird, you know, you wonder like, did Joseph kind of step in? Did, did Mary kind of flinch and hold him back or what? I don't know, but somehow, guys, the Holy Spirit is all over this. You can't miss that in the text that the Holy Spirit had been telling Simeon about this. The Holy Spirit drew him in there, guided by the Spirit. He knew exactly... Look, there were peasants everywhere throughout the temple. 
Jesus was not the only baby being brought in that day, right? So they're all over the place. They were nondescript. How did Simeon just know where to find Mary, Joseph, and Jesus? But he did, right? And somehow I wonder if they too were caught up in the supernaturalness of this moment and suddenly they find themselves handing Jesus over to this complete stranger that they'd never seen before. And he busts into this, you know, dismiss your servant in peace. It's, it's interesting. I was looking through this text. This is maybe one of the more unfamiliar parts of the Advent narratives. Um, but if you were raised in a more traditional church, Catholic, or especially maybe Greek Orthodox, this song that he pops off with is actually sung every Christmas, especially on Christmas Eve. It's called, and I'm going to throw it on the screen because it's a weird Latin term, the nunc dimittis, the nunc dimittis. I am no Latin guy. I had to look that up. Here's what it means. Um, you can see in the next slide. Now dismiss. It's actually just the first couple words of the Latin version of the New Testament. Now dismiss your servant in peace. That kind of thing. And so they would sing this. So just, just so that you can follow my little, you know, thought experiment. I want you to listen for a moment to what this sounds like. If you were in a very traditional Greek Orthodox church, what this sounds like when they sing Simeon's song. So go ahead and play that for us. So what you just heard in Latin, actually, not in Greek as it was written, but in Latin is the song that Simeon belts out here, okay? And I think it was actually really beautiful. It, it sounds maybe a little somber. Maybe the Greek Orthodox don't do things the way Veritas Church does. But it actually has a joy-filled tone to it. It's, it's actually as if Simeon is like just caught up in joy in that moment, and he's just singing this wafting song that's maybe echoing around in the temple kind of a thing, and, and he's singing these beautiful words. Man, I can die now, Lord. I, I had one job in my whole life. I've been waiting for this one moment to come in and, and see the Messiah. That's happened. My heart is full of joy. There's light to the Gentiles. There's glory for the people. And so he, he carries on, I'm saying, with this whole just almost euphoric, magical, you know, shepherds and now Simeon. And you can see where that lands with his people. His father and his mother are amazed at what has been said about him. So that, ah, this is awesome. Look at this. And now this dear old prophet. And I think Rembrandt and a couple different uh, artists have paintings of this moment, you know. And it's just this, ah, glorious moment, you know. And then Simeon drops the bomb. All of a sudden, that, that dissonance. Dissonance is like when the music all of a sudden hits this major sound that is clearly out of harmony. 
Like you're hearing all these beautiful, and all of a sudden this this jarring, sometimes very loud, like something that even a non-musical person like me can tell like, oh, oh, there's something wrong. Somebody hit the wrong note. They're like, it's incongruous. It's disharmony. It's something awful. And that's what happens right here. All of a sudden, then Simeon, it starts off, bless them. And I'm sure he did. Bless you, you know. And then drops these, these words. It says, this child is destined to cause the fall and the rise of many in Israel to be a sign that will be opposed. Looking at Mary, right? He's talking to Mary. A sword will pierce your own soul that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. So, guys, the fact that it is so abrupt, in fact, we're going to go right from this, right back into joy-filled Anna stepping in the scene and all sorts of happy, happy this little piece, this, these few words from Simeon are so jarring, so dissonant from everything else that's going on. I think it should cause us rightly to stop and pay attention to what he's saying here. So I just want to look at each phrase of that and see how that should land on us as Simeon sings his song to us. And the first thing that I think he wants us to know from this is that, guys, following Jesus is itself an invitation to hardship, okay? Today, we're talking about joy in the midst of hardship. And I want you to know, if you're here today because you're a follower of Christ, that just by signing on to be a Christ follower, just by expressing faith and trust in Jesus, following Jesus is itself an invitation to hardship. Here's what he says. Look at that again. His destiny, this child is destined to cause the fall and the rise of many. He is going to be standing at a crossroads. Jesus is going to intentionally stand in your way and everybody else's way. As we're journeying through life, we're suddenly at some point going to have this encounter with Jesus Christ and he's going to stand and kind of get in your grill and eyeball you. And that will be for either your rise or your fall. But there's going to be a fork in the road for all of us when it comes to Jesus Christ. He's not going to stand on the side and just kind of pat you on your back as you're on your way through life. He's going to stand in the intersection of your life and he's going to call you out. He will be for the rise. He'll be for the fall of many. So Jesus, guys, Jesus is not going to stay in the manger forever. He's not going to be wrapped in swaddling clothes forever. Like this moment, I almost imagine this, this moment like Simeon, you know, now with the child, with Jesus in his arms, does he, does he talk to Mary? But at this point, is he looking down at Jesus and looking, is Jesus like sleeping at this point? Is he kind of cooing? Whatever's going on, this sweet little newborn. And, and it's almost like Simeon is in that moment given by the spirit, this look into the future and saying, this sweet little child, this infant that I can hold in my arms, no, he will be the rise and fall of many. And it won't take long, you guys, if, if you got your Bible open to that, flip over to chapter four because um, Jesus grows up in Nazareth. There's a little, little detour in Egypt, but he gets back, born and raised kind of in, in Nazareth. Well, not born, born in Bethlehem, but raised in Nazareth. He's in his hometown, so now as an adult, you know, you flip just a page and you're already into his adulthood, but, but look what happens in chapter 4, verse 16. It says that 
he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up and as usually entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. So Nazareth, pretty small town, probably not a lot of synagogues. And so he's familiar. He, you know, grew up down the street from these guys. His cousins are around there, whatever. Like they're, he's a familiar dude. And so he walks in as was his custom. Oh, Jesus is back in town. Hey, Jesus, welcome back. You know, whatever, you know, goes in and he stands to read from the prophet Isaiah. Oh, look at, isn't that nice? Little local guy getting up to read the Bible to us, you know, and so look at verse 22. They were all speaking well of him, hometown folk, all amazed by the gracious words that came from his mouth. And they said, oh man, isn't this Joseph's son? Who would have thunk? Joseph's son, all grown up, doing, doing the Bible reading today. You know, and they're all like, you know, kind of happy about Jesus. And then he ends up getting in their grill, ends up just calling out his neighbors, calling out the people that he grew up with helping them to face the reality of, of who they were and what they were about to do. And look at down to verse 28. When they heard this part, everyone in the synagogue was enraged. They got up, drove him out of town, brought him to the edge of the hill that their town was built on and intending to hurl him over the cliff. But he passed right through the crowd and went on his way. Um, there's some of us heading to, to Israel and Greece this uh, next spring, and we'll, we'll actually go to Nazareth. And uh, when you see the cliff that is described here, where, I mean, just imagine this kind of mob mentality. And I don't know if you guys have ever been part of something like that, where maybe one person suddenly gets picked on and everybody just kind of piles on and he's just being pushed and shoved and pushed and shoved all the way out the synagogue, down the street. Like this is not some quick little shove match and then, okay, cooler heads prevail or whatever. No, no, no. This like keeps going, keeps going all the way to the edge where there is this massive cliff. I mean, it is no joke. And they are intending to throw Jesus over the cliff for calling him out. Like just before they were like, oh, sweet little Jesus. Isn't that cool? He's all grown up. And now all of a sudden enraged, ready to toss him over the cliff and miraculously he just stops that event supernaturally and just walks through them. Here's what I'm saying, guys. That's the destiny of Jesus. So back, back in chapter two, he's still a baby, right? But Simeon knows what his parents don't quite know yet, that this is all fun and games for a while. This is all joy and angels and, you know, cool stuff on the front end. People aren't going to be so happy with him down the road. Shepherds aren't going to be applauding him for long once he starts getting in people's grills. So I just, man, this gave me pause and I want to welcome you into this moment of Simeon. I think what he's trying to say to all of us, even at Christmas season, guys, as followers of Christ, people are going to love you for a lot of the stuff that you bring because you follow Christ. Okay. You're going to win a lot of people's favor because you speak wisdom and, and when all of a sudden you drop some perfectly well-chosen Bible verse onto a situation, they're going to be like, man, you're good. You got, where'd you get that stuff? And you're going to be impressive at the workplace or Thanksgiving or whatever. You know, you're, you're going to actually be able to bring comfort and hope and joy and wisdom. And people are going to be like, wow, who would have guessed, you know, that pothead, he ended up being okay or whatever, you know, like that's what they would have said about me. Um, and, and they... They'll like you for that. They'll like for a lot of stuff because you're a follower of Christ. They're going to like a lot of the stuff that goes with being a follower of Christ. And then you're going to feel compelled to speak truth to them. 
at some point you become the fork in the road. At some point you find yourself being the one to have to say what is true about someone. And at that point, often at least, no longer the applause, no longer the good on you. They're furious with you. They're furious with you because you follow Christ. Because you have the audacity to say what Jesus would say. Because you would have the audacity to stand in front of them and tell them what is true, things will not go well. Now, you guys, let me just say this real quick. That's not an excuse for you to be offensive, okay? That's, you know, there are Christians that just kind of love the fight. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. There are Christians who are just offensive. This isn't like license to be offensive. What I am saying, though, is even the most charming of you at some point are going to be pressed to speak truth in an awkward situation because you know what's right and true and you can't help it and you've got that nasty gut feeling and everything, but you just speak the truth in that moment because you're a follower of Christ and I'm telling you, often that doesn't go well. Truth is offensive. And at that point, Jesus will even through you lift some up because they will listen to you and, and be reconciled to Christ and, and embrace it or they will be crushed by what you're saying and it will make them mad. Guys, you have to be truth speakers if you're a follower of Christ. You have to be. You can't balk just because people will take offense at what you have to say. You have to be truth speakers in the same way that a cancer doctor has to drop the truth to somebody that they've got cancer and it's going to require some, some hard days ahead, right? You've got to speak truth the way that a therapist will speak truth into somebody to help them jar out of wrong thinking that they're in, right? Because the truth, while it hurts in the moment, is exactly what that person needs. And if they don't get it, they've got a terrible destiny in front of them. And so you've got to be a truth speaker as a follower of Christ, no matter what the result, no matter if that works well for you or if you are public enemy number one because of it. What I'm saying is Simeon is trying to say, even in the midst of joy, Christmas, joy to the world, he's trying to say, okay, that's true. All that is true. But also be prepared. Because true speakers often find themselves kind of on the wrong side of, of relationships, right? Some will get angry. But guys, that is our destiny, right? That, he said, this child's destiny is to be that fork in the road. This child's destiny, he is destined. There will be people that rise and fall because of Jesus. And now you as a follower of Christ are representing him. That's our calling. So just by being associated with Jesus, I'm telling you, hardships are in your path. They're in your path. But then, here's the second thing that happens, because then, okay, I, you know, he's talking to Mary, but I, I do think that it's like this child, I think he's looking at baby Jesus, and now it's like he looks up and looks directly into Mary's eyes because he says, and a sword will pierce your own soul. Looks right into her eyes. This is all great, and you've been pondering these things in your heart, and now you're amazed at what has just been said. And Mary, like, she's, she's all about this. You know, this is her son, and look at all these glorious things. And then he just looks at her and says, your soul is going to be pierced. So I think the takeaway for us in that is that those closest to Jesus are not exempt from hardship. Those closest to Jesus 
those who actually center their lives most tightly around Jesus, whose lives are, are just inextricably connected with Jesus, they are not exempt. And in fact, they might even face some of the hardest of hardships. Because the Savior uh, born in Bethlehem, like Mary, Mary even, when, when you look back at, you know, one of the other cool songs of the nativity is Mary's Magnificat, her praise, uh, back in chapter one, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. She sings about it. Simeon has just said, my eyes have seen your salvation. Here's what Simeon also knows, because somehow the Holy Spirit has given him a, a, a look down the corridor of time. That salvation will come to us through the ghastly death of Jesus Christ. And he's looking at Mary and almost trying to prepare her like, you've been singing about the salvation that this one is bringing. I'm telling you, he will bring you salvation and it will shock you the way that this salvation is, is brought to you. Could anything prepare Mary for that? You guys, Mary, um, all these prophecies, all this stuff, and, and she's going to know, she's going to be, you know, in her mind, okay, even from birth, Simeon tried to prepare me for this. But God's standing in front of the cross, she's a mother. What mother is able to watch their child go through what Jesus is going to go through, right? No one is exempt from hardship. It will pierce her soul to watch her son go through that. So I was thinking about this, and, and one of my favorite kind of mystics is uh, this guy Tozer. And here's, here's one of the things that he, he says about this very idea. He says, it's amazing to me. He says, it's amazing to me. There are people within the ranks of Christianity who have been taught and who believe that Christ will shield his followers from wounds of every kind. It's shocking to me. People actually believe that? Christians actually think that we're going to be shielded from wounds? He says this, If the truth were known, the saints of God in every age were only effective after they had been wounded. They experienced the humbling wounds that brought contrition, compassion, and a yearning for the knowledge of God. I could only wish... There were more among the followers of Christ who knew what some of the early saints meant when they spoke of being wounded by the Holy Spirit. I'm shocked that people don't get this because every saint of every age will tell you, I only truly understood Jesus Christ when I was wounded. I only truly was able to understand contrition, truly able to offer compassion, truly able to embrace what it meant to really be a follower of Christ because of hardship. And so I just want to say, um, the closer you get to Jesus, it's not that you get shielded more from hardship. In fact, you might be inviting more levels of hardship, and it will be for your good and for God's glory. But Simeon is, he's not pulling any punches, right? It's like, yes, there is glory and joy to the world. You got to know this. This is what it is. And looks at even Mary, his mother, and says, this is awesome and joy-filled, and there is a Savior in my arms, and it will crush you. It will pierce your soul. And then, in my mind, here's what happens. He goes from looking at Jesus to looking Mary just straight in the eye. And then, if it's possible, through the Bible, it's like he's looking at you and me right now, okay? 
in some weird kind of way, he all of a sudden turns his attention, and I feel like Simeon staring me down, that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And here's what I believe, guys. Hardships reveal the real me. Hardships actually reveal what's really in there, the real me. Um, some of you were here last week when um, Mark was talking about lessons from his father, and he, he told the story of his, his dad, Jack, uh, trying to race out of, out of his kitchen door into the garage, but in doing so, fell, whacked his head really hard, and they thought it was awful. They thought he might be dying from this head injury, get to the hospital. And if, you're, if you were here, remember the story, the good news, bad news, when they got to the, to the emergency is, oh, well, your head is actually okay. Well, there's no fracture of the skull. That wound didn't actually fracture your skull. Good news. Oh, but by doing the imaging to see what was going on in there, we found a tumor, right? But thankfully, that tumor was treatable, and it was actually the fall in the wound that gave them the insight as to know what was really in there, right? That there was something to be treated. And now he's running around being awesome and giving Mark sermon illustrations and all that kind of stuff because he took a hard fall. But because of that, the real thing that was going on in there, we thought was one thing. No, the real thing in there was able to be revealed. He was able to get treatment and all that kind of stuff. Here's what I'm saying. We thank God for hardship and those abrupt, like, Times, those, those crisis moments, the opposition, the, the piercing of our souls, like Simeon has just talked to me. We thank God for that because here's what happens. In those moments, it's like we get imaging as to what's really going on in there. There's stuff rumbling around in our souls that we've kind of masked and we haven't actually dealt with. And they're not actually kind of evident very much to anybody else. And then hardship comes. And you know what? The real me comes out right? You guys know that, right? Hardships bring the real me out and for everybody to see, for all on display, especially to God. And so I want to go back to Johnny's spoken word because, again, listen, listen to a couple of the lines, Johnny's spoken word. God, please call joy from the streets of my broken spirit. I want to feel joy again, God. Please give me joy. And I think what Simeon is wanting us to know, guys, is that true joy is found in maybe one of the most unlikely places. It's not in the times of euphoria or celebration. It's in the time of hardship. That's where the real deep, anchored joy is going to be found. It's in the crucible of hardship that we're going to discover true and lasting joy. In fact, as I was thinking about that, um, there's a passage in the, in the book of Jude, um, right at the end of Jude. I've, I'm going to have it on the screen for you. So Jude, guys, is like the half-brother of, of Jesus. So Mary and Joseph went on to have other children. Jude is, is one of those. And so he had a, like a front-row seat to... Uh, hearing the stories of the past and watching the whole scene of Jesus play out, including his crucifixion and then resurrection. And when Jude goes to write a letter, I, I think there's something really integral to what Simeon is saying here. Now, on the other side of the cross, he says, Now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory. Now, just 
protect you from stumbling. Here's, here's the assumption that Jude is, is that we're going to likely start stumbling along the way. We're going to likely face hardship. We're going to face opposition. We're going to likely face internal opposition. We're going to stumble around at times. And our hope is not in those moments that I'm going to be able to just kind of write myself up or somehow that God will prevent me from ever stumbling. No, no, no. The idea is, and it's anchored back even in like Psalm 37 and other places, in those times of stumbling, he will be able to make you stand in his presence, in his glory. And look at this. Without blemish, it, it's not going to fully take you out. When you get stood back upright, you're just going to be able to dust yourself off, right? It, and with great joy to make you stand in the presence of his glory without blemish and with great joy. Coming out of the stumbling, having to kind of dust yourself back off. That's where you're going to discover the great joy. Because Jesus is going to meet you there. Jesus is going to be the one to pick you back up. Jesus is going to be the one to help you to stand. And so that's going to give you a deeper well of great joy than you have never experienced before. The kind of joy that you really want isn't just the momentary happiness when you open just the exact right present that you wanted at Christmas time. It's when you come through hardship, Jesus sets you up, you dust yourself off, and you're like, oh man, I didn't even know the well of joy could go this deep in my soul as I'm now experiencing it because of Jesus. And so he just says, who saw that coming? To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and majesty and power and authority before all time now and forever. Amen. So guys, today... Um, this seems like a dissonant way to start Advent. Like, man, I'm coming to Veritas. Do you guys ever just let us sing happy songs and feel good about ourselves, you know? Well, you and I all live in a real world, right? That after we sing the songs, we walk out into places of hardship and difficulty. And even in Advent, Jesus is preparing us to experience real, lasting joy. So what I want to do, I, 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 we're going to have communion. I'm so grateful again that today is a communion day because this is our anchor for true joy. It's when we celebrate communion, this is a reminder that our joy is not found in family celebrations. It's not found in the, the perfect gift, uh, Black Friday or Cyber Monday or anything else, right? It's, there's some joy in that. I hope you guys found some joy in that. Sounds like purgatory to me, but... Um, hope you found some joy in that. But the deep joy, the profound joy that we really deeply want, the joy to the world that the angels sang about, often comes mysteriously packaged in a gift of hardship. And there's nobody that understands that more, you guys, than Jesus Christ. <coughs> Jesus knew as well that bringing you joy required his hardship. Your eternal joy was bound up and wrapped up in his suffering and hardship. And he gladly bore it. And now beckons you down a path to say, 
well, I, it's unlikely that I will cause you to experience the kind of hardship that I did, Jesus would say. You're probably too weak. I won't call you to that. But I will bring the kind of hardship into your life that you can encounter and experience. And when you do, I'll be there to stand you up and dust you off and you will experience great joy. So I want to pray. Here's what we're going to do, guys. We're going to just have a few moments of, of prayer and the, the worship team is just going to be playing for us as we just let this song of Simeon rest in our souls. And then as, as you find yourself prepared to really experience communion, just come up to one of the tables. They're scattered around the rooms. There's, there's actually a, a gluten-free one in the back there by the sound booth. Then make your way up and experience the worship of Jesus Christ through communion. And then we'll end our time by singing here in just a little bit. But let's, uh, will you pray with me? Jesus, there's a miraculous, magical way that you take these words on a page and apply them just beautifully to every soul in this room. And so I pray, God, in the quietness of these moments, we want to hear from you, and we want these words to land in our souls And so I pray, God, would you allow us to experience joy, but not the quick passing joy, the deep, profound joy that you bring to us in Christ. Help us to know, God, it's not going to be found deep in our own souls. It's going to be found in Christ. And so we come to you humbly asking for joy.